Welcome to the Republican Professor. This morning we have Rich Bordner, K through 12 high school teacher, critical thinking and logic and English and history, I, I believe, and high school wrestling coach for many, many years, distinguished service in the K through 12 system in California and now in Missouri, right? Texas. Texas. Sorry. I'm from how did, get, how did I get that wrong? Well, I'm I'm from Missouri. That's where I that's where I was born and raised. So okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I was thinking misery, and then uh, that makes sense. Texas, yes. That, that doesn't even equate. That doesn't even those two don't even go together. Well, in the middle of July. <laughs> there you go. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> so Rich is joining us from Texas. Is it the Dallas area? Yeah, North Dallas. Okay. Oh, and uh Curtis is in Texas as well. I don't know if Curtis wants to say the location of his mansion. Yeah, we're, we're in North Dallas too. Yeah. Okay. That's where his mansion is with all those books and the evil library. Where we're he up here on quarter, plans. quarter acre ranch. Yep. Okay. And I'm in frozen California. As you can see, clearly I'm in, I'm in my backyard. Um, it's a heck of my, a my, well, see my dad's. My dad's name, my dad was Mike San Francisco, and San Francisco was named after my grandfather. <laughs> um, and his, his name was Isaiah San Francisco. They, they named the, their, the people after weird names back then. And my mom's name was Susan Marin, and Marin County is named after her. And, and so just the family history, you know, here we are. You're I'm welcome. on my mom's side right now. Well, anyway, uh, welcome, Rich. We're glad to have you. It's an honor. Yeah, it's an honor for us, too. Uh, I'd like to share a warm anecdote uh, about Rich. Um, I have seen a workday for Rich. Actually, I didn't see the whole workday. I saw part of it. That was enough for me to see at um, a high school in southern orange county where they have like southern accents down there they're like boy you're down in the wrong part of orange county boy <laughs> you're in the southern part of orange county boy like whatever man and <laughs> That's right. yeah kids yeah, drive to school with guns back. gun racks in their trucks and cowboy boots That's not there's rattlesnakes everywhere southern california i don't i can't remember the name of the school do you want to say the name of that school? Yeah, yeah I'll say the name of school is uh, Capo Valley High School in Mission Viejo. Ca Ca Capo Valley. Yeah. Mich okay. So cool. it's, it's short for Capistrano Valley. Um, oh, yes. Yeah. So one of its one of its many claims to fame is uh, that was the high school where uh, Todd Marinovich was from. I don't know any uh, if you if either of you guys are. Uh, football that fans a, back is that a cold war movies. reference or is it was he a, right about he yeah, so he was, from the he was, um, he was a quarterback at usc i don't know if he won a heisman or something but he was a really good quarterback in ufc in the early 90s and got drafted by uh the raiders and just had a lot of lot of promise and it just long story short didn't end up panning out kind of you know fizzled for several reasons but uh todd marinovich is that's where the high school is where he's from anyway oh. useless trivia <laughs> well i saw inside uh, a day in the life and um of yvonne 
Deniso K through 12 of itch. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it was interesting. I mean, it was like time management on steroids. Uh, the, the number of keys that you had after class, we would go over to the wrestling area and you'd open all this stuff and show us where the guys worked out and the mats and, <clears throat> and you had a pretty big program in wrestling there. Right. I mean, it, it seems like it was like, I want to say it was like 80 kids. Is that right? No, my way off. This is, about half that. this is about half that. Yeah, 40? About... Okay. Where'd I get yes, 80 that's... from? I must that's, be living uh, in the eighties. Yeah. It must be just, I'm li- I miss the eighties. That's what it is. I miss yeah. uh, Ronald Reagan. So, uh, yeah, so you had 40 kids and mm-hmm. how many of those were on varsity? How many were junior varsity? Well, I can't remember exactly that time, but you have 14 weight classes. And so you have 14 on varsity and then 14 on junior varsity and then 14 on your freshman, sophomore team. So uh, I don't think we quite filled out uh, a full squad on each level because, you know, just doesn't really work out that way given the the distribution of weights you know you can have five guys at 112 or 114 whatever it was back then but then you have nobody at the next weight class up or you got nobody in your middle so it can be like feast or famine you know you have a bunch of kids at one weight class but none at another it doesn't automatically compute to you know you got 14 kids and that means you have a full squad just doesn't, doesn't work out like that makes sense yeah, you can't take a huge kid and go, okay, you're a 120s now. Um, drop, drop weight. Mm-hmm. Don't drink water for two weeks. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, how did you get into uh, coaching wrestling? Well, I'll What's tell you this. Background? Did you I'll wrestle? You yeah, yeah, I did. I wrestled in uh, all the way from fourth grade all the way through college. So exactly the math, like 13, 14 years. Um, and then... Right out of college, I did a, a year coaching a freshman team in, uh, in Ohio. It was a good time. And then I moved to California to do the philosophy program at Talbot. Did that for a couple of years. And then um, my first, I, I went and got a teaching credential because I, I figured at the pace I was going, I was going to be in a, a lot of debt if I didn't get a decent paying job pretty soon so i went and got my teaching credential you thought ahead about that that's good yeah well it was it was because of a girl you know i was was dating a girl at the time and uh one day she kind of said like you know uh what are you gonna do for your future you gotta get this figured out if you're gonna you're gonna marry me so uh, i didn't end up marrying her but i do thank her for like um kicking me in the rear and getting me going so Uh, cool anyway my first teaching job was in uh, compton i taught there for three years and uh, that is also where I, I started volunteer coaching. Um, and it was kind of a unique situation because I just kind of fell into it. And uh, I, I wouldn't really ca- call it, you know, normal coaching experience. Um, that's not because of the, the, the guy that I was coaching with, he was a good guy. He was actually in my wedding when I got married. Uh, but we were just kind of trying to fly by the seat of our pants and do as best we could in a really, really, really weird environment. Uh, so it was just kind of a, which gang were you in in Compton? Did I was in the bald guy gang, <laughs> the old, the old, the old fuddy duddy bald guy gang. For those who cannot see this, cause they're listening on audio. 
Rich is bald. Yeah. But he still looks really young. So there you go. All you got that going. So that's where I um, started my teaching career and got a little little bit of coaching under my belt. But you know, but, normally if you're gonna be a head coach, what you would do is you would coach for several years under, you know, a kind of like an apprenticeship where you would learn mm -hmm. from a head coach who was, you know, uh, established and whatnot. And I just didn't, I just never got that. Uh, so at the end of that three years, I got a head coaching job at Capitol Valley. Um, it just kind of popped, came up out of nowhere. Uh, at that time, there weren't a whole lot of teaching jobs. So uh, I was kind of thinking. What year like was, was that? Was, no, that was, oh, shoot. It was like 2000, 2007, 2008, something like that. Um, I was moving on from Compton. I was not going to teach there anymore. So you um, came straight out of Compton? I did. I did. Yeah. But I was just planning oh, you, on. You teed that up beautifully. And we didn't even talk about that beforehand. Right that I, uh, I, I thought that I was going to start my marriage off by just sub teaching and uh, coaching by the school that was right by where our apartment was going to be. Oh, so uh, you were the head coach, but you weren't a teacher there yet. No, no, no. This I was uh, the, the head coach job came up. And I applied for it. And yeah, I didn't think okay. I was going to get it because there weren't that many jobs. There was very, very, very few teaching jobs, actually. So on my honeymoon, I got a call from them. And my interview was the day that I got back from my honeymoon. Uh, my wife and I were moving into our apartment together. And I remember driving to the interview in a U-Haul truck, like this big, giant, 20-foot U-Haul <laughs> truck. I pull up to the school, get out in my suit and tie do the interview. I, I didn't think I got the job because it was like, it was like three or four weeks and I didn't hear from them, you know? And then all of a sudden, a couple of days before school started, uh, they called me said, Hey, you want the job? And I said, of course, and uh, just jumped right in and uh, had no clue what I was doing, but that's how, uh, that's how I started coaching. Just kind of one-on-one. -on -one. So was, was it coaching and teaching or just yeah. a straight coaching job? Yeah, it was uh, coaching and teaching. Okay. I, I wouldn't have applied for it if it wasn't a, a full-time teaching job that my intention was to, you know, use the coaching to kind of get my foot in the door in, in a, in a school. Okay, cool. Uh, ended up, you know, making it a thing for nine years, almost a decade. Isn't that kind of weird for the kids though? If it's just your foot in the classroom, <laughs> I mean, it's, uh, I would, I would, feel, your math I would be weirded out. Uh, <laughs> Like what's going on here? What? I as know he's from Compton, but as opposed to an ear or a nose in the door. <laughs> well, okay, I haven't even finished my anecdote. Okay. Um, I uh, I saw Rich in action teaching critical thinking and logic to, I think they were seniors. Correct me. I don't know. Not juniors. They were upper. They weren't younger. They weren't the fresh man and sophomores. Um, <clears throat> and it was about, uh, seemed like it was about 10 minutes of 10, 11 minutes of solid and uh, uninterrupted instruction where they, where he had most of them, which is pretty good. That's pretty good. Uh, it's better. It's more than the Prager University videos. <laughs> and the, you know, then there'd be like some discussion and then maybe some distraction and, and then another seven, eight, 
minutes solid of instruction. And so I think they were coming out with a good 20 some minutes of solid logic that they would have never gotten otherwise really chewing and thinking and see the thing about high school kids, it's different with uh, high school kids than, than college. You do lose them faster. It seems like, and this is just, I mean, obviously I'm talking to the King right here, but I've taught in high schools too. Uh, I taught college in high school for in the LAUSD. Um, and in my experience, it fits with my experience. You lose them faster, but when you have them, you have them on a deeper level than you do the, the college kids. You're making a deeper impact. Yeah. So what do you mean by that? Like, what is it when you say, like, um, be a little more specific. It, it seems like uh, they are taking in, if you have them, I'm, what I mean by that is they're paying attention, right? <laughs> You've earned their um, respect in some way or be, their besides the kid over there sleeping. Yeah. Which happened in my classes. Um, Cause there's no discipline where, where Democrats reign, there is no discipline generally speaking. And, and the Los Angeles uh, unified school district uh, was no exception, but, but there were probably most of the class, I would say 80% when you have them, you can tell that what you're saying to them is life-changing. Hmm. That's, that was my experience. Obviously I can't follow up, but um, anyway, it seemed like that was happening in your class. Although I did see a lot of people pretending to be skeptical just to try to push the boundaries or try to, you know, mm-hmm. it's their parents issue. You know, they, their parents tell them what to do and they, they probably say the same thing to their parents and, so with the with the college kids you teach, they're paying attention, but they just they just don't value it as much. Is that what you're saying? Or they blow it off more? I'm just trying well, to see if I understand you correctly. Seems like with the college kids, generally speaking, um, if you have them, they're a little bit more distracted. College colleges, I think, are you you have them on a a. a more shallow level because you don't have them every day mm-hmm. you have them for maybe an hour you have them every day right your your kids now i do but back in capo it was block schedule so it was Blocks, okay it was two and a half days a week oh, okay all right. all right yeah so it was more like a college yeah okay well um i was just really impressed with the work you did and the with the constraints that you had Inter- including the administrative crap that they had you doing all the time. It seems like you were always juggling like two things at once. You were like yeah. either taking role or calling a parent and teaching the class at the same time. <laughs> I don't know what you were doing, but, but you were able to juggle a lot, it seemed like, and manage the classroom well. And um, mm-hmm. you didn't even have to resort to corporal punishment. I remember when you pulled me off a kid, when I was just slapping the slapping this kid silly, slapping the taste out of his mouth. And you said, you know, you you're like, no, we we do we don't do that. And I was like, not even with the flice water. And you pull the flice water out of my hand. And the the kid, you know, had what he was his he had tears welling up and his face was starting to welt and bruise. And you're like, yeah, not even here. 
And he said, you said, sorry to the kid. He had some dead flies kind of stuck on his face and pancake, but um, no. Okay. I'm, I'm making you, all of that up, but you remember that. Well, I have a rich fantasy <laughs> life. Okay. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, but you, you, you had the kids obviously respected you. You were obviously highly respected on campus by the kids walking from the the classroom over to the wrestling kids were constantly coming up to you, talking to you, asking you advice. Um, They, they clearly looked up to you. And if you told them to do something, they would do it. So it was, that's what I observed. Um, And uh, so I, as soon as we started this podcast, I knew I wanted to have like the K through 12 focus on here because that's who we, you're bringing us who we get in college i was like i gotta have rich on i gotta i gotta find rich where is he (laughs) and you track me down yeah man um how long were you at capo i was at capo for nine years yeah and you were wrestling coach for the whole time Mm -hmm. how many hours a week did you work uh well it depends on the time of year uh, I actually calculated this because I was curious. Um, October through early March, it's about 80 hours a week. And yeah. then March through June is about 60. And then July and August would be the summer break would be about 40. Mm. So that's kind of what you're looking at. Um, a lot of it was... A lot of it is, you know, it wasn't just coaching head coach at the high school level, but I had to um, run a, a youth program as well. I wasn't, I wasn't the coach in the room all the time, at least in the winter. I had another staff do that, but I was kind of administrating and, and doing things in the background. So that's still, you know, it all added up. It all added up. Rich, take us through a typical day. What, what time would you show up? Are you talking about a weekday or a weekend? <laughs> um, yeah, we typical, typical weekday when you would teach. Okay. All right. So I'll, I'll actually do you one better. I'll give you both. So uh, it depends on whether there's a competition that day or not. So if there's not a competition, uh, usually I would get to work at about 630 and uh, hit the ground running. So give me enough time to do about an hour to hour and a half of you know, administrative work, doing emails and calls and setting stuff up for, you know, future competitions or whatever else I need to do from a wrestling end and sometimes from for my classes and planning and grading and stuff. And then uh, 8 to 1230-ish would be classes. So I would do, you know, they were on block schedules back at Capo. And then the afternoon, 12.30 to whenever school let out, that would be either my, what call my prep period, which would be, you know, grading and planning and stuff like that. Or it would be um, uh, every other day. So like Monday, Wednesday, it'd be a planning period, but then Tuesday, Thursday, it would be, uh, we'd have practice. Mm-hmm. And so we would go practice, um, you know, do Freshman practice from one to three, and then the upper level guys would be lifting and conditioning. And then three to five, we would flip it. The uh, upper level guys would have their practice and the freshman guys would do their 
conditioning and lifting and stuff like that. And then after that, uh, and you're supervising the lifting and everything you're supervising mm -hmm. both things going on at the same time. No, I got a, I, I have uh, I had a, some other coaches that would run the freshman practice. And so they would, they would run the freshman practice and the freshman lifting, but I would do the, the upper level varsity guys lifting and then their practice. So it wasn't just a one man show. I had a, I had a staff guys that were really good and uh, you know, added a lot of help. So I don't want to make it look like it was just all on me because it wasn't, they, they did a lot of work too. And there was, it was a two day a week practice. No, it would be every day, but um, on the off days, like when we didn't have practice at one o'clock, we would just have it later after school. Oh, I gotcha. So on those days you would just get home later. So um, on days where you had practice at one o'clock, you would get home. I'd get home about six or five thirty, six o'clock. And then on the days where you had to wait till after school, you just get home a little bit later, you know, six thirty, seven o'clock, something like that. What in my high school, when we wrestled, it was the same schedule every day. And so practice was just after school. Yeah. And yeah. you were there till seven. Yeah. Well, the, the, <laughs> uh, the block schedule made it different because, you know, you, you can't in block schedule, you can't have every period every day. You know, you only have some periods on some days. And so that kind of made, yeah. made it a different schedule. So you get there. Uh, tell me at what time you got there again. About 6.30 a.m. 6.30, keys in the hand. Mm -hmm. And then what what time are you leaving typically? Uh, about 6 o'clock. 6 or 6.30 in the, in the evening. And for those who don't know, when you do wrestling, you have tournaments on Saturday. You still do that, right? Friday and Saturday. Yeah, Friday and Saturday. Oh, I didn't yeah, know Yeah, they'd be two-day events. Oh, so that's why it, it depends on whether you got a competition or not because – if you've got a tournament uh, on a weekend, usually they're two-day affairs because they're, they're a bunch of teams, uh, you know, 40, 50 teams in a tournament. And so it would start, you know, you'd have Friday weigh-ins, maybe 8 o'clock or 9 o'clock, and then you'd start the tournament at 11. Friday you would get done pretty late. Maybe if, if it, the tournament was well-run and efficient, you would get done about 7 or 8 in the evening. Uh, but if it was inefficient and kind of running slow, you'd get done, you know, 10, 10, 30 at night on Friday. And then you'd do it all over again on Saturday. Wow. So they're not going to school on Fridays. Yeah, correct. Wow. I think I missed that part. I didn't know that we, we went to school on Fridays and then we had this tournaments on Saturdays all day. Now, are you driving the bus <laughs> on Saturday? Who's, who's driving the bus? Um, no. Um, <laughs> okay. This was kind of a complicated thing. So, so first couple of years, you know, we'd have bus drivers and whatnot, but then there were some budget cuts in our district and uh, they, they made us start paying for buses uh, like our, like our booster clubs. And so we just did away with the buses and did like a carpool. So uh -huh. I think when, when you came around, we were probably still doing the carpool. Um, so it, it yeah. seemed like it was a, an affair to get everybody there and, you know, it wasn't well, just, like just, uh, the bus leaves at this up. time, get your ass on the bus. Yeah, yeah. just well, e even getting getting people just to show up on time, uh, not either sleep in or flake <laughs> or be overweight and making an excuse about it or mommy calling us up five minutes before the carpool had to leave and saying, you know, Tommy's got Tommy's got a little sniffle and is not going to be competing today. You know, there's there was always always, always, I don't know if I ever 
had nowadays you tell him to just take a put a mask on (laughs) i got i'll put a shot in his arm take put a damn mask on oh man and get out there on the mat yeah lucas i don't know if i ever had a single competition where everybody that was scheduled to be in the competition actually was there in the competition there was always somebody missing yeah usually usually more than one so how are you managing all of that? How are you managing the excuses and pushing these kids to excel, helping them to discover their non-douchey self? How do you do that? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> you must be, have the patience of job. No, no, I, I didn't. I was actually pretty short fused. Um, awesome. I mean, tell me, I, tell I me more. Tell us more. <laughs> <laughs> that probably worked, actually. I can't I think give it you an answer that I can't give you an answer to that question because I really don't know. Like, I never was able to figure out how to. And I, I'm just being. I'm not trying to denigrate myself or put myself down. I'm just being honest. I, I, I really don't think I uh, figured out how to motivate well. Mm. Um, you know, there was always maybe it's impossible for that age group? Well, I don't know. I've seen some coaches who were really good at it and I tried to learn from them and emulate what they did. But, um, you know, I, I think let me, I'm, let me put I'm this skeptical. Way. Yeah. I'm very, well, I'm very skeptical in, uh, in coaching. I learned a lot about myself. All right. I, I learned that I wasn't the hotshot motivator, uh, awesome coach that I thought I was. So it was a really if I could put it in a nutshell and summarize the whole nine years, it was a really humbling experience and it, uh, and it knocked me down a peg or two and it put me in touch with, um, the, uh, the, the, the weaker parts of myself. So, uh, that was one of them, you know, like you, you figure like, Oh, I know how to reach this kid or I know how to reach these kids and this team and get this team motivated and on the right, right track. But every time you, try something and go down the road there's this massive curveball that comes your way and hits you upside the head and you you know something happens that you just didn't expect or a kid reacts a certain way that you just didn't see that coming and uh you're back to the drawing board and i I had that happen so many times you know so do you do you have an example that you want to share with us or do you want to move on to something um Okay. I don't want. I don't want to pressure you to share something. No, no. I know it's kind of sensitive because these or, are or they, something. They something were minors. They're not minors anymore, but they were minors well, at the time. Well, I'll, I'll this, I won't. I won't be specific because I, I can't think of a specific story right now. But typically, um, just give us their student number, and then I'll. You know, yeah. we'll we'll do it that well, way. Here's here's one that would that would just really wrap me around the axle, and it happened a lot. Um you pour into a kid for a couple of years um, and just when he's getting good, just when he is getting to the point where he is going to experience the fruits of his labor and you are going to experience the fruits of his labor with him. I I can see where this is going and I'm already scared to hear it. Well, I just, I just said it. He quits, you know, it just comes out of nowhere. Like you don't expect it. Like one day he's on top of the world, having fun, doing good. And it's like, man, I love this sport. And then literally the very next day, he comes up to you and usually he doesn't come up to you. Usually he just like stops doesn't showing up, up. Yeah. and they don't, they don't face you, you know, yeah. or you get a text message or the parent will tell you or something like that. Funny and how that works. 
there's there's no like there's no talking the kid out of it or and just that that happens so many times you know oh my um, gosh how many times would you say that happened uh well if you if you start over a dozen yeah. oh yeah if you have um if you have a freshman class of 20 which is pretty good for wrestling but let's say you have a freshman class of 20 uh, maybe about two or three of those kids will make it to their senior year. That was my odds. I mean, the, the other coaches had better odds, but that was that was my numbers. That was my numbers. Having a having a senior class of two, three, four kids was not at all abnormal. Was it? Started. Did you ever figure out? Was there a typical reason? Was it drugs? Was it a girl? Was it family pressure? Was it just? tired being tired what was it do you think well wrestling's a tough sport wrestling's a hard sport it's hard and to make anybody uh, who's ever wrestled knows exactly what you're talking about people who've never wrestled they don't know what you're talking about well it's it's fun but you always there's always a a, a part of it probably most of it that's not fun in the way that they define fun <laughs> right so so it's it's fun when if you, get you define fun as you know fun then you know it's not fun but like if you redefine it like marriage or something and like you add a bunch of shit that's not fun then it is pretty fun exactly exactly um what drew you to wrestling because you got the ears and i remember the first time i saw you i was like oh he's a wrestler i could tell so yeah. you've obviously been wrestling for like a century or something by that time you're fairly short i'm going to describe you for people who are not being able to see this i'd say your weight right now is you'd be 160s 160 maybe i don't know thank you add add about 30 pounds of that come on you're uh, like a little fire hydrant and i wouldn't want to wrestle you <laughs> i guarantee you um so and you're you're clearly very good in your technique um you're you probably still can wrestle the hell out of 99 percent of the population you wrestled in college, right? Collegiate. Mm -hmm. Yep. Uh, what what college did you wrestle for? The Ohio State University. I've heard of that school. Where where is that? That's in uh, Ohio. Okay. Is <laughs> it? A, it's in the state of Ohio. Columbus, Ohio, to be exact. They're big in wrestling too. Yeah, it's a big deal. Yep. Okay, we're not going to uh, focus on the name Columbus and how racist that is. We'll just move on um ohio uh you did you wrestle all four years five yeah because you, you get four years plus, plus a red shirt okay yeah cool hmm. plus I, a what i, I missed like that a, i missed that what you you got a plus a what what was a that? red shirt here a red What's shirt is when you're you're on the team you practice with the team but you don't compete for the team you can go to open competitions uh but you're kind of on your own uh, competitions so it's just a year to kind of mature physically before you actually start competing for the team what what uh, weight classes were you in in college uh, i was in 149 my first four years and then my last year i was 157 okay and so you clearly did not have a drunken party experience at the ohio state university you were not chugging the brew you weren't doing the typical bong hits and all that right obviously because there's no way anybody could 
survive a even a looking at a practice, let alone the practice in that condition, and not to mention well, the weight you, issue. You'd be surprised. Uh, there were, <laughs> uh, I was on a team with some, some party animals where uh, I remember a couple times we had 8 a.m. Saturday practice, and uh, I got drunk by wrestling them. So, you know. <laughs> they were Fun. That's when you eat garlic the night before, you know? a lot of it. Yeah. Um, so right. what's uh, what was your major in high school? Or sorry, college. I started, um, I got a degree in English and then along the way picked up a, uh, another in philosophy. So I was a double major. Oh, cool. Yeah. Your English is very good. I can, I can understand you pretty well. And I'm a native speaker. Ain't um, got no grammar mistakes around here. <laughs> so how did you, that's, so you're a philosopher as a wrestler. How did you get into philosophy? Okay, so that's that's a story. Um, when I first got to college, I was a brand new Christian. I had just given my life to Christ a couple months before, and so didn't didn't know hardly anything. Um, it's still largely the case, but even worse back then. Um, first week in college, I bumped into two guys that changed the trajectory of my life. Um, they were in InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, and they got me plugged into the various uh, groups there on campus. Ironically, one of them was named Darwin. So, uh, Darwin, if you're out there, uh, love you. You changed That's his first name. That was his first name, Darwin. Yeah, man. Don't Crazy. tell me his last name was Charles. Don't tell me. <laughs> Don't tell me his last name was Comma Charles. Uh, forget his last. It was it was Wu, wasn't it? I forget his last name. He was he was an Asian guy. So they they got me plugged in. And um, my roommate that year was an agnostic guy. He was really smart and would just pepper me with questions. And I didn't know how to answer them. So it, it got to the point where I, was, I either had to fish or cut bait. I had to, like, figure out answers to this guy's questions and to the questions and challenges that I was getting in the larger campus in my classes at the time. Or, or I was I had to leave. I had to leave the faith because I didn't want just a placebo, you know. So uh, that's where I got into apologetics. Um, Right around November, October, my freshman year, I went to uh, a William Lane Craig debate. That was when he debated uh, Peter Atkins, and I saw that for the first time. Going into that debate, I was I was really scared. I was like, you know, how, you know, the the, the Christian guys, they're all about faith, and the atheists are all about science, you know, so how is this going to work out? You know, I, I kind of had the stereotype in my head, but Craig just absolutely cleaned house and uh, did really well. So it came out of the, that debate was like, you know, maybe maybe there's something to this. Maybe maybe my faith can survive on campus and find answers to these questions. And so through all that, that's when I started taking philosophy classes. I took a one on one class as part of that, you know, larger search. And uh, the, the, the guy that taught the class afterwards, he's, he pulls me aside. He's like, hey, you know, you you should think about taking more classes because you'd be really good at this. So I said, OK. So I took another class and that led to another and which led to another just kind of snowballed from there after that first one-on-one class that that's I kept, impressive I, yeah, I, I, mean, I just kept yeah. liking what I, I just kept liking the classes and enjoying myself and so it eventually became a minor and then became a major after you know very three, cool yeah that's awesome I don't think I ever had a teacher in any subject pull me aside and say you should do more of this 
yeah, I don't, I don't know what he saw or why he said that, but he did. And so that, that little thing just was, was enough to get me to take the next step, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's cool. That, that kind of speaks to the, the influence, uh, of a, of a, you know, teacher student relationship, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so he must've been pretty cool to in your mind, you must've connected with him as a teacher for him, for you to take that advice. Like yeah, what, was, well, I, what was that class I, like? I remember he, he looked a lot like Jesus. So, um, <laughs> there was that, you know, he had the, the long hair and the beard, at least the, the stereotype of Jesus. Uh, yeah, I, I don't remember much about that class. Honestly, I, I do remember that the uh, the book that we used in the class was all about Star Trek. So it was like using <laughs> it was using Star Trek to kind of delve into some, you know, mind body problem type questions. Hmm. Um, and I think I wrote my paper. I don't remember what I said in the paper, but I wrote it on uh, compatibilism in terms of free will versus determinism. Interesting. And uh, he he thought it was good. And just said, you know, hey, uh, consider making this a thing. So I did. Very cool. And it was, and you know, at that point in time, um, hopefully your audience is encouraged by this, or at least this makes them think. Because I know that apologetics and philosophy tends to get a bad rap in the larger Christian culture. Like a lot of youth pastors that I run into and a lot of parents that I run into in uh, my ministry that I do. Uh, they're like, you know, that, ju- that just teaches them to be, teaches kids to be argumentative. Um, we don't want that. We want them. You're like, to- no, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. <laughs> Prove it. Prove exactly. it with facts. Exactly. So they, they got the stereotype of apologetics as, as just like leading people to be argumentative and kind of that, that, that guy. And at least for me, it was such a life raft. Mm. I would not have survived college without it. Um, period. Yeah. Because I was getting bombarded with questions and issues everywhere that I went that I had no, like nobody ever taught me the answer to. And I, I had, I had to look for, I had to look for a life raft and I found it in guys like William Lane Craig and JP Moreland. And That's they, a they form, were, are, those, those were our professors uh, just yeah. for everybody to know that you later went to study with them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, that's, that's why I went to Biola because they had influenced my thinking as an undergrad. And I just wanted to have the experience of sitting at their feet and learning from them, you know? Yeah. So, so the, the point is, is that um, for like right now in the church, it's well known that we have a formation problem. A lot of kids who are, raised in solid Christian homes and go to solid Christian churches and are very active in their youth group, they get to college in a year or two, they walk away and answering the the why is a a complicated issue. But one of the big reasons why is because um, they're just not really formed and catechized well in, in, in the faith and in the Bible. And so their, their roots go an inch deep, you know, and, and that was me, you know, that was me when I got to college. And uh, like, what what would have happened if I didn't have apologetics and philosophy? I I would have been a number. I would have walked away. Yeah. So parents, uh, youth leaders, um, you need to pay attention to apologetics and philosophy. You need to give your kids that stuff because um, it is it's it's perseverance. It helps them persevere when the doubts come. Yeah. So yeah. there's there's you know going to get off my soapbox, but. That was my story. That's awesome. 
what uh, classes did you take in philosophy? Do you recall? Did you take metaphysics? Did you take epistemology? At Ohio State? Yeah. Um, it really wasn't structured like that, like it was at Talbot, uh, where, you know, at Talbot, they're teaching their first philosophy, like how to do philosophy. Um, at Ohio State, um, it was, you know, you're not going to take metaphysics and epistemology. You're going to take ancient Greek philosophy, or you're going to take 20th century philosophy, or you'll take a class on uh, the philosophy of mind, like the mind-body problem, you know, different issues like that, or, or meta-ethics. Uh, but it really wasn't that kind of, you know, hey, you're in a class on metaphysics, so let's learn how to do metaphysics as a philosopher. It really wasn't that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. It was more topical or historical. Mm -hmm. Yeah, both topical and historical. Yeah. How did, how did so, your uh, how did your training at the Ohio State University prepare you for the classes you had at Biola at the graduate level? Did you feel like you were able to hang pretty well in those classes that we had at Biola? Um, or did you feel underwater? I mean, a, a little bit underwater. I think everybody does, or most people do at at Talbot. Uh, even if you have a background in philosophy. Oh yeah. I think, I think I, I was underwater, but maybe not as much as somebody who was like brand new to the enterprise or was maybe coming from like a business background or something. Um, but it was, it was still a big old drink from a fire hydrant. You know? For sure. Yeah. My under my undergrad, I had, I have a degree in philosophy, you know, mm -hmm. and, I, at, and I did that at Biola. And the, the grad pro then went into their grad program. That was, and I was still like, whoa, I felt like I had to work a lot harder than a lot of people. Yeah. Yeah. It's just a lot of reading, a lot of writing, you know, yeah. and it's, and, and like I was saying earlier, they're, they're coming at it from a different angle. Um, they're, they're actually teaching you how to do philosophy rather right. than, all right, let's, let's read, let's read Kant and what his views yeah. are. You know, right. it's, it's right. totally. It, I guess if I could give an analogy, it would be like, um, like you you've learned Spanish fluently, but now you got to go back and learn Latin. So there's a little bit of a carryover, right? Um, some of the words are familiar, but still, it's a totally different ballgame. You know, you're still learning a, a brand new language, even though you know Spanish fluently. Latin's Latin. Yeah. Um, does, that, does that make sense? Yeah, there's different ways of teaching philosophy. The different programs have different modalities of, of orientations, I suppose. Uh, some are figure based. You take a class on Descartes, Kant, Hume, something like that. Mm -hmm. Some are topic based. Um, it, you know, that some people have a historical approach to the topics and some people just have a topical approach, you know, um, art at, at Biola was a analytic tradition, unapologetically, ironically, analytic. And um, we didn't take courses on like Hume and Kant. And so you, you just had to those names were thrown in there and you had to figure out who's on what side on this debate. And mm -hmm. And it was pretty much we were reading contemporary people with the with the exception of Dave Horner, uh, when he taught ancient and medieval ethics, then that was specifically Aristotle and Aquinas and mm -hmm. um, people who wrote about Aristotle and Aquinas now. 
but um so yeah that's what i've noticed about it was the we didn't have a history of philosophy at biola you just had to kind of ingest that so if if you had history of philosophy before you got there like you did curtis like because that's required as undergrad in biola right. you took probably dave chalky for ancient oh yeah maybe yeah, we, who did you we, have for modern and uh there was a gentleman there named Del Hansen that that taught that at that time. Um, but yeah, we, it was broken up into ancient, uh, medieval and modern mm-hmm. and temporary. Did you, by the way, did you see that Chalky got back to us and he's going to be on? Oh, no, I didn't. Yep. Yep. That's awesome. Yep. So that's going to be great. Well, um, okay. So let's you, how long? were you teaching at capo before you were able to teach some philosophy in your class, like some logic and critical thinking? Was that right away? Or did you have to kind of weasel your way into that? Uh, I I think it was a couple of years because we started a, uh, a research paper project that was, it was a research paper, but it was also at the same time um, like a debate project so the kids would choose topics and would they would write a paper on it but they would also engage in a class debate on it and then through that i started to work in the the logic angle to kind of help them become better arguers and i think that was that was like three or four years into it or something like that yeah that was that was fun trying to get them to What's it like teaching philosophy in high school? Like, uh, well, what, now, is oh, it actually, is it worthwhile? It, can can they benefit from it? Oh yeah. Um, now I actually teach a philosophy class. Um, oh, that's really cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So my entire time at Capo, it was just I just taught English, and then uh, when I came to Texas, I did a year in the. English second language department, the ESL department, but then moved to uh, the English department after that and uh, picked up a a philosophy elective along the way. So I actually directly teach a whole class of philosophy now. And it's fun. Yeah. Um, It's really beneficial to them, at least uh, judging from what they say and the feedback they give. um, They find it a, uh, a practical course and very valuable to them and not just a like a gpa grab like they're they're interested in it so yeah short answer to your question that's phenomenal to be able to get an opportunity to teach logic uh in that course yeah that's great yeah uh i actually used to in that course i actually used to have a whole four to five week unit on it but uh the last two years i've i've taken that out and we just do other things, but it's still kind of, you know, how mom and dad blends the broccoli in with your smoothie. It's kind of yeah. <laughs> like that. I'll, I'll sprinkle it in there here and there still. Well, I, I've long said you probably would, would agree. One of the problems with our education system is when they is taking logic out of schools in the first place. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's, that's good. Yeah. So critical thinking. They need it. Yeah. They need it. So you're working 80 hours a week when you were wrestling, mm-hmm. 80 hours. That's yeah. like lawyer. 
Are you making lawyer money at this time? Nope. <laughs> so a lot of people don't know how are coaches paid? What's the, do you feel like sharing? Uh, I, I mean, can just cause through. people have no idea. Like yeah. they might think a head coach, Oh, you are getting paid pretty well. Like, you know, one fifty. you're pulling down a buck 50 for 80 um, hours. The, uh, the rules are you get a, a, a stipend, which is, um, that's usually what the word they use when they're going to pay you some bullshit amount. It it well, works. You're going to get a stipend. It's a stipend. The the head the head coach is a little bit more than assistant coaches, but it works out to about for a full season. So I don't want to give you exact numbers, but it works out to about half a month's pay. And so you get that for a full season. So you can get that in the winter, and you can get that in the spring. You're talking like a few grand, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Per, per season. Enough for like a used car, like a used Corolla. Maybe in the eighties or nineties, a used. Definitely yeah. Actually, not. I don't even know what the used market is. When I say used, I mean, like, <laughs> <laughs> I guess I should specify <laughs> back in my day, a used Corolla meant it ran. It went to the, it, you could drive it to the grocery store. <laughs> not, not what it means now which is i bought it last year and i can't afford the payments um, well so you're basically doing this for free basically um, yeah. come, on, come on that's what's happening early man you do get a little bit of pay but it's you're not you're not raking in the bucks you're doing it because you love it that that's why you're doing it that's what i tell myself yeah. <laughs> well, for one, I, I coach as well. And it's either it, it, some of it's the sport, but a lot of it is the kids. You know, the, I would mm -hmm. say the majority of it is seeing the lights go on. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. You're right. Well, dude, you were you were responsible for a whole heck of a lot. And you did you have kids at this time? Yeah. Yeah. Um, what was that like? What was the impact of that like on your marriage? It was hard. Mm. It was hard. Uh, and that's one of the reasons why I got out because uh, wrestling's a, a very demanding mistress. Um, and uh, I don't know if, if I kept coaching, I don't know if I'd still be married. Let's put it that way. So, uh, so I you're, to, not co you're not coaching currently in Texas. You were coaching correct. for nine years in Southern California. Yeah. Now you're in Texas and yeah. It was, it was just, it was really hard on my family. Um, partly because, um, you know, the closest family that my, my wife had was two, 2000 miles away. Uh, we really didn't have that good of a community. I mean, we went, to, we went to church, but, uh, you know, every week, but we weren't really what you would call plugged in, uh, didn't really have a lot of help. And, um, I, I didn't realize this until later, but my wife needed a lot of help and in California, we didn't have it. So, um, it's very after, hard to have a community in, in Southern California, very yes. difficult. Yeah. Um, and especially since I was working so much, you know, when I was home, mm. I, I was, I was present, but not present. You know, I, I had to do other stuff, you know, like what I started at school, I'd have to continue at home. Or, and I would just be so doggone tired 
uh, that it'd be really difficult for me to engage with uh, wife and kids, which is what they needed at that time. They, they just, they really didn't have a dad. You were given so, everything to the kid, to the, to the sport. Un- unfortunately, unfortunately, yeah, I was given, given the best part of myself to the sport. It's easy to do. And, yeah. um, after nine years, um, they kind of got to the point where, you know, something had to give. And so that's the short story, but had to stop coaching. And, and now I, I, I go into the room of the current school that I teach. You know, I volunteer maybe a day or two a week, but I just keep it at that. And um, best decision I made in my life. Well, second to, you know, giving life to Christ and getting married and all that. Uh, one of the best decisions I made. <laughs> there you go. One of is good. There you go. Because <laughs> uh, my life go. is so much better now. I, I have energy and time to be a dad to my kids and to be a husband to my wife. And uh, that, that should have been my priority all along really if you had to do it over if you went back like mm-hmm. god came down and took you back to when you first started you got off the u-haul you got out of the u-haul you had your suit on who drives a u-haul with the suit on first of all weird uh you know you're straight out of compton and you're going into that interview at capo valley in mm-hmm. uh, mission viejo um do you pull the trigger and do it again or hmm. what, what would Man, you do? That's a good question. Um, I don't know. I don't know. Cause you know, on the one hand throughout my nine years, I, I had the pleasure of meeting some really cool people and interacting with um, students, athletes and coaches that enrich my life in really good ways. Um, and I had some, I had some great experiences. He had some great stories to tell. So I can take that with me for the rest of my life. So I got, had that. And number two, I don't know if I would have been able to get my, get a teaching job in Southern California where I lived at the time without that, Mm -hmm. because the the jobs were so few and far between that I kind of needed the coaching angle to get in. So all of that, but at the same time, if you, you know, there's like Thomas Sowell said, there's no solutions, only trade-offs. Uh, there's the, the trade-off, the sacrifice that other people had to make was really, really big. You know, like I just talked about the sacrifice my wife had to make and the sacrifice that my kids had to make. Um, I, I don't know. I can't say either way. Um, well, maybe you could have taken. Could question. you have taken the the te- the coaching thing, got your foot in the door, and then quit later? Would you have been a fired from teaching at that time? Did you have a contract that said you had to do both? No, but it would have been weird. You know, if I would have just been. Like, just explain it to him. Say God brought me back in time, <laughs> and I've already done this shit. I got your stipend for nine years. This is like two years in. You're saying this. Mm-hmm. You're like, I just want to teach philosophy now because I've already taught here. That that question is such a hard one to to answer. Like, what would you do if you could do it all over again? Because I, I I just can't really envision my life happening any other way. But at the same time, I recognize that there was uh, a hell of a trade off. Negative. Yeah with my family so if, I don't, if if your wife was answering that question what would she say you think honey <laughs> sorry <laughs> i shouldn't put you on the spot like that <laughs> you're doing work. 
um, I don't know. That'd be a good good thing for us to talk about. That'd be a great conversation. Do you believe that time travel is possible? Metaphysically possible? No. Okay, so it's a stupid question anyway. Oh, it's it's kind of like, well, what if uh, two plus two equals three? What about that? What would you do then? <laughs> stupid. Um, it's a stupid question. No, it's it's a good one. It's just one that's hard to answer. Yeah. Because um, the lessons that I've learned along the way and, and who I've become were, were so intertwined with that past history. It's just hard to envision my yes. life the way. That's right. That's right. That's that's not to say, okay, because I know a lot of people are like, I have no regrets. Like, I've got regrets. Like, anybody that says that they have no regrets is either lying, yeah. not thinking about it hard enough, or they're just being stupid. Because, of course, you have regrets. But I can acknowledge that even though I have regrets, that I've learned a lot of stuff along the way that has uh, shaped, shaped my life in positive ways now, you know, that that whole deal so yeah you bring oh, up that, does that make sense you you brought up thomas soul and there yeah. you know that, that, that's perfect there are no solutions there's only trade-offs and so applying that principle to this question um it, it, you got to consider all the things you learned right mm-hmm. so what are the trade-offs of learning them differently <laughs> that's something people don't that's think okay. about i want to learn all those same lessons i want to become the man i am now but i want to go through it differently well yeah well, if it's I hard no matter what, <laughs> <laughs> could I have learned those lessons any other way? I don't right. know. Yeah. I don't know. This is getting way too deep and it's kind of creepy. <laughs> I, I was like, I, I had a wrestling coach on. I didn't want it to get deep. I was just like, <laughs> what do you do? Just keep it on the mat. Well, I, I wrestle with, I wrestle with these sorts of things. I wrestle with ideas, you know? Yeah. Oh, that's good. I like it's a good that. connection. You just gave us the title. Um, Rich, what's a typical day for you now, now that you're not coaching when, during, when you're teaching, what's a typical day? What time do you get up? What time do you get up? I get up at 5.00 AM now. What time Um, are you getting up uh, in, uh, at Capo Valley? About the same time. Okay. But I just wasn't, wasn't doing a lot that I'm doing now. Um, for instance, so I get up, I get up now at 5.00 AM. Uh, that's, this is when I do my workout. In the morning. Okay, tell us about your workout. What do you do? I just have a garage gym. A lot of most mostly body weight stuff, like um, you know, a lot of stuff in the gymnastics rings and so you you lug your own ass around in your garage. Yeah. And that's pretty cool. Uh yeah. how long do you do that for? Usually about an hour. And then I'll oh, have that's a lot. Uh, I'll have a little Bible reading and prayer while I'm stretching. Uh-huh. Uh get the girls up at that time. We, uh, you know, have them do their chores and then, uh, before they have the breakfast, I'll, I'll read to them right now. We're reading animal farm cause it seems, uh, timely. Mm. So we'll read some <laughs> literature, we'll do some Bible reading and then, uh, they'll get ready for the day. I'll get ready for the day. Take them to, they, th- we, we have a, a, a hybrid. So part two, two days a week, they go to a classical school and then two days a week they're, they're doing homeschool. So it's kind of half and half. Oh, cool. Yeah. So two days a week, I'll take them to school. Two days a week, they'll start school at home. I usually get to work at about eight o'clock in Texas. Schools start later. They don't start at eight. They start at nine. Uh, So I get to school at eight, do a little bit of work. Um, School starts at nine, no block scheduling. So you got 50 minute periods every, you know, six periods throughout the school day. 
and then uh, school gets every done. day's the same. Yeah, yeah, pretty much every day's the same. And then four fifteen, school gets out. Maybe work for about another forty five minutes to an hour afterwards, and then go home. And that's a typical day. Do you miss coaching? Uh, yes and no. Um, that's a contradiction. Uh, you you didn't just to take logic. Uh, well, maybe I need to go back to the go back to logic. Um, <laughs> it's actually not a contradiction if you mean yes in one sense and no in the other sense. But right. of course, you already knew that. But I'm saying it for the benefit of everybody else. I'm just trying to play along with the joke here. Um, yes, in the sense of I, you know, part of part of being a man is is like building things. And I enjoyed trying at least to build a program, you know, so I missed that part. And I missed uh, the individuals that I had the pleasure of, of knowing and coaching. But uh, I don't miss it in the sense that, um, how should I put this? It was, so the, the, the curveballs that I was talking about earlier, where you build into a kid and you pour your heart and soul into him. And then he just pulls that rug out from under you and thinks nothing of it and just walks away uh, right when he's getting good. That happened too many times. And so I don't miss that. Mm. Um, that really, maybe it shouldn't have bothered me as much. Um, maybe I should have gotten used to it, but I never got used to it because I put so much of my heart and soul and energy and everything that I had into building this kid. And then it's just like all went to all went to crap in like that. You know, what do you, what do you get out of it internally? I mean, you're not, you don't get any money out of it. What, what do you get out of it internally when a kid sticks with it and succeeds? Um, that bring you a lot of joy Yeah, to see that. Yeah. Describe that. Like that's, well, that's happened before. So what is that like? Well, that's why you do it. Um, okay. I'll, I'll give you a specific. I think, I think maybe you should describe that. So people know, cause people haven't coached. There's some people that don't know what that's like at all. Yeah. Well, um, okay. So there was a, a kid who his senior year was his, his last was my last year of coaching. Uh, his name is Gerardo. And um, he started as uh, like a fourth grader the first year of our youth club. And so he wrestles fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth grade, comes into our high school program as a ninth grader, does really well as a freshman, um, does really well as a sophomore, has, has some tough breaks at the end of the year, but uh, ends up becoming an All-American as a sophomore and as a junior, places at nationals. And then uh, senior year, places uh third in the state and it had been a while That's since awesome since we had a state placer in our in our program it was like 2000 2001 was the last time california is a big state yeah yeah so it's like it's like one one division 980 schools something like that it's a ton of schools so if you place in the state in california you're pretty legit and so this kid uh, he could write his own ticket right he could write a ticket to any any program and yeah, get a full well, he, scholarship right you, know, you got to he got a scholarship to uh, to a good college and is still wrestling in college today. 
And um, being there for his last match, uh, I mean, I, that was that was pretty emotional. Being in the corner, and uh, he goes out on top and wins that last match and walks off. And which is know. why he wasn't fourth for those of you keeping track. If you're third, <laughs> that means you won your last match. Mm-hmm. So that's how the so, numbers work out. Just getting to uh, hug the kid as he walks off the mat. In so his last cool. high school match. Yeah, that's a really cool experience. I really can't put it into words. All I can say for your audience is that uh, that that made it worth it because I was I was there day one, like his first <laughs> day in in the wrestling room when he came in had never practiced before as a fourth grader, this little chunky uh, fourth grader, and then to see him grow into you know over the the course of you know eight nine years into this young man that if I wrestled, if I tried to wrestle him then as a senior, uh, he would beat me senseless. <laughs> he would hurt, he would hurt and, me. And that's not, no, that's not normal or you're not used to being beaten by your own students. Uh, well, it happened more often than, than I like to admit, but, uh, he would, he would really, uh, ring me out. So being there for that whole process from start to finish. Yeah. That was pretty cool. That's pretty cool. A lot of people don't realize how much training goes into wrestling and how long it takes to get good. It's year round. It's year it's, round. Man. You don't get a break. Did you say that you had him as a fourth grader? So you were teaching fourth graders? I think I might have missed that part. Well, that was the first year where we started our youth program. Okay. I yeah. yeah. So he had he had um other coaches as a youth wrestler, but you know, I was there to kind of start the program, the youth program off. And then from time to time, we kind of pop back in and would uh, do some things with the youth program. So I had gotten to know him pretty well as uh, an elementary school kid and a middle school kid. And his last uh, match, did he win by points or by pen? Yeah. Yeah. He won by points. He came from behind and uh, he actually, the, the kid that beat him earlier in the tournament to send him to the consolation bracket, uh, was the same kid he wrestled for third place, and he ended up uh, avenging that loss and and beating him. Impressive. So, yeah, it's pretty good. That's so there awesome. were and there and were did, a lot of stories like that that ma- did make it worthwhile. Yeah. Was he the one that placed the highest in your career? Mm-hmm. Your students? Yeah, it's pretty yeah. good. In California, it's really good. Um, I think yeah. California is the most populous state in the country now, so. You have done very well. Good job, man. <laughs> Good job. Um, now you're working on um, something on your free time. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, about two years ago, started a, um, a ministry called uh, the Daniel Collaborative, and it's, it's named after the prophet Daniel. And it's, its aim is to, I want to play a part in helping solve that formation problem that I talked about in churches. I know that, you know, I'm just, I'm just one small part in a, in a larger effort, larger church effort, but I want to do my part. So the whole aim of the ministry, just in short, is to, is to make Daniels. Uh, If you look at the prophet Daniel in the old Testament, he's kind of a, He's, he's a timely model, a uh, concrete exemplar for our youth. You know, he's, he faced a lot of opposition 
so much more than any of us could ever fathom facing in the West. And at every point in time, he knew what he was standing on. He knew what he was standing against. And he just didn't budge an inch. He was a courageous young man at every point in time when he was opposed. And so I, I just want to do my part in passing that baton on to the next generation and helping to form young men and women that look like Daniel. Hmm. So uh, I got a website, danielcollaborative.com. Um, I work with parents, uh, church leaders, and youth. Uh, for parents and church leaders, primarily what I want to do is uh, kind of help in the discipleship aspect. I want to help parents um, figure out how to disciple their kids amidst a busy suburban life. And um, youth leaders, I kind of want to come alongside them and help do the same, primarily just by telling stories of conversations that I get in the classroom. Because so as, as a philosophy teacher, I get into a lot of conversations about deep fundamental issues with kids every week, almost every day. I've got some sort of story about some sort of conversation. And so I'm going to tell people, you know, tell parents and tell youth leaders like, hey, this is what's going on in the classroom, in the schools. These are the patterns that I'm noticing. These patterns fit the data that we're seeing about Gen Z. And so now let's figure out what can we do about it? How should we respond to these patterns in the way that Gen Z is living and thinking and, and being? So um, that's primarily what I've, do with parents and uh, youth leaders is kind of help that discipleship angle. And then when I work directly with students, you know, I can teach on a lot of uh, apologetical uh, topics that, you know, a lot of others do. But one thing that I do that I think is at least somewhat unique is I, I'll come in and I'll, I'll role play in a conversation. So I'll act as the atheist and I'll role play in a conversation as an atheist where the, you know, the audience is trying to convince me and I'm talking back to them. We'll go back and forth for 45 minutes to an hour. Then I'll come out of character and we'll debrief. We'll kind of go back over the conversation and ask, okay, how'd you do? Uh, what were some things that you had difficulty handling? What were some things that I said that you didn't know how to answer? Let's walk back through all that. And then let's draw some lessons for here's, here's why you should devote time and energy to forming your intellect and forming your mind in a Christian way. Um, so the role play is kind of motivation to help students wake up to their need for apologetics and philosophy because they're going to get to college and they're going to they're going to need it. So you can you can tell them all day long. You can give them the verses. You can read them uh, mm -hmm. the J.P. Moreland quotes from Love Your God with All Your Mind. And it's like it's like, you know, pings off their head and bounces off their head. And they're like, yeah, 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 whatever. And they just dismiss it. But then when you actually get into a conversation where they see their need and they feel the tension and they feel the intensity, like, oh crap, I really don't know how to respond. Then that now you've shown them their need and they they're in touch with it much better. And they're much better motivated to actually go from there and devote part of their day to preparing themselves and preparing their intellects for what's to come. So that's primarily what I do in my spare time. That's really good. I like you're getting them to experience mm -hmm. that that need in a safe space exactly yeah that's that's good yeah um it's it's not an idea that i cooked up i got it from actually some some other biola guys 
um, that came to the program. But yeah, it's it's a really interactive and engaging teaching, you know. So you yeah. can you can sit there and give them a 25, 30 minute sermon, or you can engage them in some sort of back and forth, like a scrimmage, you know, and you said it perfectly, safe environment. These are conversations they are going to have when they get out on their own. They cannot avoid them. Yeah. So it's either you have them now and you get to shepherd them through it or you wait and then they have it when they're out on their own and they don't know what to do with it. Deal with fallout. So, yeah. 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 So say in a safe environment is, is right. You know? So yeah, that and trying to talk with parents and letting them know like, this is what's going on in classrooms. These are what, this is, this is the patterns that I'm seeing in students. Now let's figure out what to do about it. Pretty fun. That sounds great. How long has the D Daniel collaborative been in existence? About a year and a half, two years. Okay. And yeah. it sounds to me, it sounds like a wrestling match or it sounds like a wrestling um, practice where you wrestle and then you debrief and go, what happened there? Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> how do you prevent that. the guy from doing that? Yeah. Um, <laughs> That's, that's a really good way to put it. In my coaching experience, the kids that progressed the most and became the most skilled at their sport were the ones that were competing all the time. And they were the one, like the one thing that we would do that would give them exposure and give them matches is we would have scrimmages often. So on a Saturday for two hours, instead of going to like a 12 hour tournament in the off season, like in the summer, say, we would have a bunch of teams over to our room and we would just run matches. And so you would, in a two hour time span, you would get 10 to 12 matches with guys that weren't on your team. And uh, it would be really, really physically tiring. But if you do that a bunch of times, you're going to get really good. Yeah. Because those, those scrimmage matches, like one scrimmage match is like five practices, you know? So you can talk about this all day long in your youth group but are you actually getting into the scrimmages and getting into the conversations where you have to, you know, kind of in a, in a really intense fashion, think and, and figure out where your, where your weaknesses are and, and work on those. Yeah. Yeah. And it's personal too, because you, if you keep getting pinned or you keep getting, you know, taken down in a certain way or reversed in a certain way, you really are bothered by, you want to make sure you got, you got to figure out how do I prevent that, you know, yes. in, in the future. Yes. And it, what you wouldn't be as bothered by it. If you didn't go, if you didn't compete, if you didn't get into those. Yes, that's right. right. You wouldn't, you wouldn't see what your weaknesses are and you wouldn't be motivated to work on. Them. You wouldn't know what you don't know. Exactly. Yeah, Cause it's humiliating. Exactly. <laughs> so you have to be humiliated. <laughs> I mean, in a fake way. I mean, it's like, but it's still, you know, the guy's pinning you. That's humiliating. It's like, you know, um, yeah. well, how do, uh, how do you raise money for that? How do you reach out? How do you get parents to trust you? That's, uh, that's difficult. Um, because a lot of the gatekeepers don't really see the value in apologetics and philosophy training. They don't see the role that it plays in, um, in solving that retention formation problem. So yeah, it's, it's hard to get people's attention, but you know, you just find, find people who are already on board and try to work with them and network with them and 
Yeah. Um, you know, be good at your craft and do a good job in that. And it grows. Did you have any stories that you wanted to share? Little anecdotes about teaching or yeah, coaching? Share Either one. Yeah. I, we want to hear stories. we like stories. Stories are the, probably the most effective way for us to understand what it's really like. You're right. You're right. Okay. So this is a story that I tell in um, my talk to parents. It's a talk that I give that's called, what are, what are students thinking? That's what I was saying earlier. The first part is here are some patterns of student thinking that I've noticed in my classroom. Here's how it matches the data that we're seeing coming out about Gen Z. And then part two is what, what do we do about it? How should we then disciple? So this is a story that I tell in that talk. Uh, this, this one comes from my English class. And it was, it happened about, I think a little over a year ago. So it was during um, pandemic schooling. And the uh, unit that we had just finished, the culminating project was students had to build a town. It was like a, they had to make a PowerPoint presentation about this fictitious town that they created that was like centering around their own values and, and what they cared about and whatnot. And they had to do a presentation on it. And so every single student in the classroom, in my English classes, had as a central value in their town, in our town or in my town, you can be who you want to be. Uh, you can do you, you know, no, no limits, no judgment. You, you get to be who you are without people pushing you to be someone else. Maybe it was worded a little differently from presentation to presentation, but that was like from Jump Street, their central thing in their town. And so one girl gets up there and she says that. And so I, I try to, I'm, I'm starting to press a little bit with some questions. And so I go, okay, um, who is the, who is the poster child, like the exemplary citizen in your town? So she thinks for a second and she goes, Willow and Jaden Smith. I said, well, why? Well, she says their edgy lifestyles were rejected by the black community. So, okay, well, what do you mean by edgy? And you know what she means by edgy, right? They're, their sexually promiscuous lifestyle. I think, I think Willow is even like like polyamorous or something. I don't I don't know, but according to the student, Willow was, you know, polyamorous. So anyway, um, okay. So their edgy lifestyles were rejected by the black community, and so I go, well, is is there anybody that you would reject in your town? Is there anybody that that's very you, good? That that's you very would, good. That you would not let in. You're forcing people to be yeah. themselves right <laughs> yeah yeah so she goes she goes no no there's there's nobody that i would that i would reject and kick out of my town i said well nobody she goes nobody so i got okay uh what about donald trump and i didn't say that to defend trump or anything i'm just gonna like i was like trying to find her point of tension what was this what year was this just for context this was uh right before or maybe it was right after the election. 15 16 no, no, this was, this was during the pandemic. Oh, sorry. So I missed that. Sorry. And this is at your current high school. Yeah. In yeah. In Texas. Yeah. And so immediate negative visceral reactions. It's like, oh, hell no. Trump would have to go. No Trump's in my town. Like, no way am I letting him in. Or just like 10 seconds ago, she was like, you know, all Miss Diversity, you know. So I go, okay. All right. So, so Trump back. can't do himself. Right. Exactly. So it's <laughs> do, like, okay. So there's. He can't do it to himself. Yeah. There's, there's some people 
that uh, you know you have li you have limits on um, that whole principle you were talking about earlier. Like you can do you. You have limits on that, right? So okay, well I guess I do. And so I go well. All right, let's think back to what you said about Willow and Jaden Smith. Uh, let's say that tomorrow you find concrete, irrefutable, scientific proof that the polyamorous lifestyle is bad for society and that it's bad for that individual. And it's just bad all around. It leads to harm. And, and this is irrefutable scientific proof. Would you put any limits on that in your town? And she goes, no. So I go, well, why not? She goes, well, it's, it's, all, it's all about choice. I can't, I can't get in the way of somebody's choices. Um, if they want that, then- Except Donald. Except Donald. <laughs> and I'm not going to get in their way. I was like, wait a minute. You've, you've found irrefutable scientific proof that it's harmful and you're still not going to limit it. She goes, yeah, I, I can't limit a person's choice. So she was just all about choice, 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 choice. And everybody in the audience was like, like, yeah, no duh, Bordner. You know, uh, <laughs> why are you even asking these questions? So they're so, following the science. Yeah. Well, no, they're rejecting the science. Okay. <laughs> I know. I'm just kidding. In, in, this, in this anecdote, what I think this shows is. Hold on. A, they're rejecting the science and they're Republicans. Hold on. I'm taking notes. Hold on. So they're rejecting the science and they're. Wait, wait. They're not. Repo Hold on. They're not. Hold on. They're rejecting. Okay. Sorry. I'm, I'm taking notes. <laughs> so the, I think the, what the, the patterns of thinking that we see from this story is number one, they're really, really inordinately individualistic, not in a healthy way, but like in the, the Disney way, like you do yeah. you. Okay. And that at the same time, paradoxically, they're very, very conformist. It's like, why do all the nonconformists dress alike? You know, because they're, they're all saying the same message and you can't That's really good. Like, you can't get them to question it. Like it's really good. Yeah. It's really hard to shake them out of it because yep. it's what they've been taught for 12 or 13 years. So yep. if That's every good. Disney movie that they've watched has that same message, if they see that on TikTok day in, day out, and every teacher in their school is saying the same, you know, you do you just be yourself, love yourself theme they're gonna to conform to it, okay? And so why are we surprised when they go, you know, off to the deep end? Well, they're just following, they're just following what they've been taught. They're conformist. They don't think they are. They think that they're individuals and nobody, you know, tells them what to think and what to believe and they're their own person, blah, 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 blah. But they're really, really conformist. Has that been effective to, to, with anybody? Do you, do you see the light bulbs going on at uh, all? My hope is that later it bothers them. But in the conversation itself, they tend to be really dogmatic and dig in their heels. Like you even saw that in that story that I just told. Like I, I'm asking... I'm just popping the bubble really obviously and it's really easy to do, but they're just digging in their heels and just doubling down on really, really, really silly stuff. You know, like obviously nobody believes that um, it's all about choice and you can't get in the way of somebody's choices and you do you like nobody believes this stuff. They just believe it when it's convenient. And so then you, you, you pop their bubble and you show them the lie and they'll double down. They'll end up saying like really, really, 
obviously stupid stuff that if they really thought about it for a second, they wouldn't say, but they're just doing it to defend her. Yeah. Yeah. That, that happened when I was teaching the definition of marriage and just, this is back when the court was, uh, trying to redefine it for the, for the rest of us, uh, by judicial fiat. Um, I used those court decisions in my logic classes and we would talk about the logical implication of rejecting, for example, prop eight, prop eight in 14 words defined what marriage had always been in California, at least just in terms of necessary conditions. Um, and uh, it was on the ballot in 2008. Yes or no. Those were the options. Yes or no. This shall, this shall continue to be, <laughs> except for is in the state constitution. And, um, and so if you say no to that set of necessary conditions, what are you saying yes to? That was not on the ballot. And so you had to think about what, what is, what is the definition of marriage then? What are you saying it is? And my students would say the craziest things you've ever heard. I mean, if it was actually on TV as pro um, no on eight, which is uh, the side that lost in the election of that year. Um, but they would saying, yeah, you can marry your grandpa because they would start with a slogan like love wins or some crap like that. And I'd say, do you love your grandpa? And, uh, you know, I love Aristotle. Can I marry a dead person? I love Walmart. Can I worry, marry a non-person? Um, you know, and they would, they would double down <laughs> like, yeah, you can marry your grandpa. Yeah. And, uh, if, if I, if I had captured that in video and just made a commercial for the no on eight side, they would have lost probably by much larger margins. And I think the, the court would have had a much harder time, uh, striking down the, the common sense, uh, English dictionary language based definition of, of marriage. It reminds me of that, so. that viral video. I forget who did it, but the guy yeah. was on college campus asking students. It's like, well, you know, what if I, it's like, he was like a, a white guy, probably about my height. It's like, what if I identify as a six foot five Chinese woman? Would you go along with that? And they're like, yeah, I would, you know, yeah. <laughs> stop playing, you know, no, you wouldn't like be, be honest with yourself and stop playing language games. So what you're doing is you're, you're, you have the confidence that people are just very tempted to BS and not be honest and just bullshit. Mm -hmm. And education for you is exposing that and, and forcing kids to face it a little bit. That's very, yeah. that's very helpful. I think. Yeah. I mean, okay, look, I'll, I'll, I'll say this. Um, I don't want to come off like I'm blaming the kids and pointing the finger at them. They're like this because this is the environment they've been raised in. People are They're like, like this because the adults are like this. Yeah. All people are like this. I, yeah, my, my, this my college stuff. classes. I mean, the exactly. voters are like, this. it's the mentoring they're getting. Yeah. yeah. It's a very human thing. That's right. Um, and I think my goal, the way I put it is I'm trying to thaw the dogmatism. I'm not trying to indoctrinate. I don't want to convert your kid. But I just want to ask some questions to help that student 
lead the examined life because most don't. And uh, that's a shame because if you don't lead the examined life, to borrow another phrase from centuries ago, uh, you're living a life of quiet desperation. And we have too many we have too many citizens in our country right now leading lives of quiet desperation. And so I want to help them go deeper and yes, be honest with themselves and what they really believe and actually figure out what they really believe. And then, um, you know, take those beliefs for a test drive. Do they work? Are they true? Uh, that's, that's what I'm trying to do. I'm helping, I'm trying to help them engage in that process in the first place, because most haven't at all. And then B, um, maybe come to some sort of uh, conclusions in that process. So thawing the dogmatism is how I put it. That's great. I like that. What, uh, do you have any other uh, anecdotes? You gave us one. Do you have another one? Yeah, I can do, I can tell another one. Let me think here. Um, okay, here's this another so, one. This is so good, Rich. You're, yeah, yeah. I've, you dude, have- you have the depths of experience. I can tell, man, you, you have been through it, dude. And you are, you are, a, you, you seriously, you are a public hero. I really do regard you. I, uh, I, I regard any, I regard any I public school teacher that does what you do as a hero. Well, thank you. I don't know about that, but I, I do have some, uh, some stories to tell. So, um, by the way, this is, this is one of the things that I do in my talk. I want to continually tell parents like, this is what's going on because like, yes, know, people need to hear this. So, please. okay. So um, oh, hold, hold on one sec. One, one sec. Okay. So you got another story for us. Yeah. This is what I really like to do. I, I, I get really passionate when I started telling stories because these are really, really fun conversations that I get in. Um, this next one comes from my philosophy class. It was right after we did a unit on morality, uh, specifically the question whether morality is objective or subjective. Mm. We watched a debate where Greg Kokel debated a, uh, like a, a Canadian philosophy professor. And so after that, we're having a Socratic discussion. And um, some of the kids, like they're all over the place, but they don't realize it. Okay. Um, one girl, who's a black girl is she's doubting whether slavery is really wrong. And so she's like, and I like, I asked her like, Hey, is, so she, let me back up a little bit. So she says like at the outset, like, no, there's, there's no real right and wrong. It's all subjective. It's all based on personal preference, blah, blah, blah. And so I said, well, okay. Um, is slavery wrong? And she goes, it's like, she's waffling back and forth. Like she can't decide like, yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's wrong. Wait a minute. No. Cause they were raised, they were raised that way. And it was back then it was a different society. So who am I to judge? Like, well, what am I saying? Like, of course it's wrong. Well, I mean, it's like, oh, I don't know if it's wrong or not. And everybody was kind of like nodding along with her. So that was one thing. And then another part of the conversation, um, one of the, one of the students gets really dogmatic about it and he starts just barking relativism and you can't budge this kid. And he's, he's like, totally, it's like, yeah, you know, we, we think the Nazis are wrong, but who are we to judge? Like all that, that whole thing, the whole nine yards. And so I start asking questions and kind of showing that that's a little bankrupt and they might want to rethink that. And the rest of the class at one point in time, like he, he just doubles down, like he won't budge. And the rest of the class turns against him. 
And they're like moaning every time he's like, yeah, yeah, the Nazis, but who are we to judge? Like, we don't know, like, because that was their society and this is how we're raised. And everybody's like, oh my gosh, like they, they can't stand him talking. But then I go like, wait a second, guys, just 30 seconds ago, you were all saying the exact same thing. You were saying the exact same thing he was saying with a straight face. It's just now that he's saying it and you're hearing it played back at you, you can't stand it. Like, well, you got to make a decision. You can't play the fence. Like you can't, you can't be uh, heads. I win tails. You lose. You, you have to either, either some things are really right and wrong and we can know it or not and quit playing both sides here. And so that was a really cool conversation because they just didn't, they didn't realize the stuff that they were reacting against was the very same things that they were saying just a minute ago. And I have that happen all the time. Yeah. Like this massive cognitive dissonance, you know, like they don't really, they don't really connect the dots until somebody else does. Yeah. And that, and you have to have the courage to do that. I mean, first of all, you have to have the ingenuity to come up with this pedagogy and then you have to have the courage to, to carry it through. So, mm-hmm. um, to, to point out the BS, so that, I mean, the inconsistency, the, the inconsistency. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I mean, just to, to, to put, push them to a point where they see their own tendency, what they're doing, because that's mm-hmm. the main, it's the same in college. It's the same in college. I mean, I'll go a little bit further than you will in college. I mean, I've, you know, well, it's the same uh, in the workplace. It's, it's, oh. it's everywhere. It's the same everywhere. Yeah. Here, can I tell, uh, can I tell one more? Of course. Yeah. 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 This is long formed as this is Joe Rogan style. Okay. Okay. So, um, I'll preface it by saying this, just make sure you squeeze it into 30 seconds because people have such low, uh, attention spans. I don't know if I and can it makes that. The I'll give it a try. Easier. That was a joke. So that was a as joke. A, as a preface, I'll say that um, most of the kids that are Christian or claim to be Christian or whatever, even the conservative ones, they it's it's hard to tell the difference when you get into these conversations between them and your more secular kids. Mm. What happens a lot is usually in a conversation the the more secular kids are the more aggressive ones and so they'll start like start a conversation by just asserting with the utmost supreme confidence their view like they won't argue for it they'll just assert it like it's like it's you know talking about the sun rising or something and then they'll they'll act kind of like sheep dogs you know how sheep dogs like nip at the heels of the herd and kind of get all the cows or the sheep or whatever in line kind of going in the same direction and so they'll they'll do these sort of rhetorical tactics and assert their confidence and kind of get everybody else in line. And most kids, 95, 98% of kids are really, really susceptible to doubt to those kind of like socialization, lunchroom shaming tactics. Okay. Except for this one kid. And I call him the skunk at the garden party. (laughs) He wasn't a Christian kid. He was a Muslim kid. Okay. He was the one kid. That's racist. No problem. (laughs) All right, whatever. But he had no problem, um, you know, staring down the rest of the class 
and confidently criticizing what everybody else was saying and just kind of being like, here I stand, I can do no other. And he did a really good job of it too. Um, but he was, he was the one kid that is just, was not cowed by uh, those other, like, like the tactics of the, the confident secular kids. And one day I was trying to figure out where this comes from. Okay? And then I, I figured it out. One day I heard him in a conversation and he's talking about macro and micro evolution. I'm like, what other, like, I've never heard a high school kid use those terms before. Those are, <laughs> those are terms of art from intelligent design. Yeah, that that's right. Only, only the nerds know. And so I'm like, <laughs> I kind of, my ears perked up. And then after class, I pull him over and I say, dude, where did you, where did you learn those terms? Where did you learn to talk like that? And he goes, well, my dad, my dad is, uh, he, he reads a lot of theology. He reads a lot of, uh, you know, the Muslim word for apologetics. And he teaches me and my siblings at home this stuff. And so I was like, that's why he's so confident. That's why he's able to um, stand there and not fall prey to the, the sheepdog tactics of, of everybody else because he gets it at home. His dad disciples him explicitly and effectively at the dinner table. And whenever I go to churches and I talk to parents, I tell them that story. It's like, you know, of course, this kid's a, a, a Muslim. I was like, buddy, you're on, I kind of wanted to tell him, like, you're on the wrong team. I wish we had you in the church. But we need more of that. We need more people, set, you know, taking a step back from the suburban hustle, like the constant endless chauffeuring of kids to program to program to program and devoting more time to explicit discipleship in the home. Yeah. You know, not just reading your Bible and praying, that's a good start, but teaching the apologetics, teaching the philosophy, um, taking the kids through the questions and the issues that they're going to run into when they're in classes and when they're on social media and stuff. Because if you don't, that's like, it's on you. If you, if not you, they're just going to be, they're going to be in the sheep and yeah. there's, you don't know who the sheep dog is nipping at the heels. Yeah. If you think about it, we've got a problem of math. In the church, um, I think a lot of families they they expect the youth group to do this kind of discipling. Like, well, if that's if if, you, if you're uh, putting that on the youth group, even the best pastors who are doing humans work and who are awesome pastors, they get your kid for two hours a week. How many hours a day does the public school system get your kid for? How many hours a day is TikTok getting your kid for? It's not a fair fight. So, mom and dad, you've got to. You've got to even the playing field a little bit by doing some explicit discipleship in the home along these lines. And, and you know, it's it, I, can, I can hear a lot of parents going, oh, yeah, right. Where am I going to find the time for that? But yeah, the, the, it, the, the parents are not ready it, for that. The parents don't even know how to do that. Well, there's that issue, too. There's that yeah. issue, too. The, the parents need the education. Yes. But yeah. but even even fitting it in, it, it, it's as simple as having a dinner together, having a meal together. And that's one of the things we do. I got five kids. I know what the, I know how hard it is to fit things in. You know, we'll do morning prayer, or evening prayer together as a family. And then the kids ask questions. Well, what about this? What about that? Or so-and-so said this the other day at school. And that's where the conversation happens. That's where the discipling happens. Exactly. You just, you just have to make it explicit. You can't be like, well, we're going to get to it whenever it comes up because then it's not, you yeah. know, and, and I, I know what you say, like, like, yeah. cause I, I live the same life too. It's a busy life, but part of what my ministry is, is, is helping people figure out 
how to do that and how to make that manageable. So it's not like this big thing that just like wears you down. Like if you, if you just keep a few principles, that's a, that's a huge thing right there. Yeah. yeah. Someone's going to go, Oh wait, it's not going to wear me down. Hold on. Tell it me, tell to. me more about that. It might yeah, actually give you that. more energy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like you just, there's, Develop that. there's, there's a very simple game plan that if you just keep a few principles in mind, it makes it manageable and it's not this overwhelming thing. You yeah. know, it, you don't you don't have to reinvent the wheel and every morning have a half hour sermon ready to go that's not what we're talking about here we're just talking like you said at the dinner table like a like a five or ten minute thing Mm -hmm. you know we live we live in an age where we have such an embarrassment of riches of resources available to us yeah you don't have to yes you don't have to come up with with the answers like other people do that work for you yeah So how do, how do the parents get leveled up to where they can effectively run this five minute thing that you're talking about? Like, how do they know they're doing being effective? How to, where do they get that kind of training and guidance? Well, that is, that is is taking your own training seriously. And it doesn't have to be like PhD level stuff. Mm -mm. Piled high and deep. Just, just reading 15 to 20 minutes a day. If you do that consistently over time, every day, that's like what, 15 books a year. And that's not nothing. That's a good, that's a good chunk of learning. You know, if you do that for a year and you look back on where you started, you will have seen yourself intellectually come really, really far in just a really short amount of time. It's just, you have to be consistent about it. And do you have that 15? And and you got to pick the right books. Yeah. Uh, do you have that 15 to 20 minutes a day? I guarantee you, no matter how busy you are, you do. You just kind of have to look at how you spend your time already. And you'll find some downtime and redeem that downtime. So for example, um, on your commute to work, like my commute to work is 20 minutes. And so um, buy an audible book, buy a book from JP Moreland uh, and, and listen to that while you're on your way to work. That's 20 minutes. Better yet, if you can hack it, put it on time and a half. And that's now in, in your 20-minute commute. Now yeah. you're getting 30 minutes in. Yeah. Rather than watching that TV show, that Netflix show at night before you go to bed, do you really need that? That's another 30 minutes. When you're in the shower, put on the Audible book. That's another 10 to 15 minutes. You know, or like bring the book into the shower. That's what I do. You could do that, but that's... That's like, you know, you find these little chunks of time that you can redeem and you just use that every single day. I bet there's many dads that could just leave a book on the top of the toilet and they, they'd get that thing book more than 15 minutes a day. Amen. <laughs> and you, here's, here's another thing. You, you, have to, you have to rethink your relationship with your cell phone too. Amen. Because for most students and for most adults, that is a, a rectangular heroin needle sitting in their pocket. And it's very like they pay, they pay a lot of people who are really smart millions of dollars to make sure that your eyes are glued to that screen as much as possible. And they're really good at it um, for you to try to white knuckle it. And which means like, just, just try to resist without really tweaking your environment. Um, that, that is like putting a, a, bit of heroin in a heroin addict's pocket and then expecting him to abstain from it. So you've got to radically rethink your environment and your relationship with the cell phone and really knock that thing down to size 
And then yes, you will find more time. Like you will, instead of scrolling <laughs> when you're sitting there, right on Facebook, right. <laughs> you'll have some time to read a couple pages. Yeah. You know? and it just, it just adds up, you know, it doesn't have to be like this big, I'm going to get a college degree thing. It's just redeem the time that you already have. Right. You know? Yeah, that's really that's, good. That, so basically, yeah, you're challenging parents to be better parents, basically. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I, I run into some parents, I hear this a lot too, but they're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't need that. Um, I've got my testimony. If anybody asks, I will tell them the difference Jesus has made in my life, but I really don't get into that apologetical stuff. I don't get in the arguing. I don't get in the answering objections. That's just not me. It's like, okay, let me take that for granted. Let me, let me, let me just say, okay, on that. But what about your kids? Like your kids need you to have a solid Christian intellect. They need you to be able to answer the questions because they're getting, trust me, absolutely bombarded with lies and crap day in and day out. You don't even know the half of it. They probably don't even know the half of it because they're swimming in the stuff. Mm -hmm. And so if they can't come to you for guidance through these really thorny intellectual questions, these hot button issues, where else can they go? So if for no other reason, you're going to need to train your mind so that you can help them persevere. Yeah. Yes. There endeth the sermon. <laughs> well said. Where can people uh, find out more about how to support what you're doing and get involved? Tell us again. Uh, my website is danielcollaborative.com. And it's spelled as in Daniel the prophet and then the word collaborative. And I just named it collaborative because, you know, I know, like I said earlier, I'm not, I'm not a one man show. I'm just collaborating with people who are already in these kids' lives, you know? So we're all just working together on the same team. So I've got, um, I've got our services there. I've got a blog there where I write about a lot of stories from the classroom, um, you know, various videos, various, various content. So it's all there. What about book suggestions? Uh, do you have that? If somebody wanted to take your advice tomorrow, what 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 would you suggest as far as a book? Hmm. Well, if they email me at uh, info at danielcollaborative.com, I'll send them a book list where it's got a, a list of books on pretty much most issues you could think about, like three or, three or four books. Um, I should put that on my website, come to think of it. Um, but yeah, if they email me, I'll send it to them. And uh, I got various other resources. So I think if I could pick one book, uh, man, let me think here. I should have come ready for this question. That's all right. Okay. Uh, I haven't read this book, but... It's one that I've heard a lot of good stuff about. Uh, it's the new one by Natasha Crane. Gosh, what is it called? Let me look it up here. Hold on a second. I'll give you. There we go. Faithfully different. It's called Faithfully Different. Uh, the subtitle is Regaining Biblical Clarity in a Secular Culture. Hmm. And why are you can, why are you confident about this book if you haven't read it? I've just heard a couple of podcasts where she kind of gives a synopsis of the book, and it sounds like it's really timely. 
But I have read um, two of her other books, talking to your kids about God and okay. keeping kids on God's side. So um, she's not one of these woke people that no, is, no, no, is, is asleep. Quite the opposite. Quite the okay. opposite. Um, and in those other two books, uh, each chapter is like a different question that kids might have or that they might get and helping the parent kind of walk their kids through those questions. So those are good books. Those are good places to start. Um, Greg Kobel's books are really good. I probably should have led with this. Um, his book on relativism, Feet Firmly Planted in Midair is a classic. That's, you know, 20 some years old, but it's evergreen. Uh, his book called Tactics. Um, it's, a, it's a book on learning how to converse and talk with people, not just like sermonize, but actually have a conversation with them that's edifying. Yeah. Uh, that's a really good book. If you want to go a little bit more kind of heavy sledding, uh, two books that are really timely is one of them is J.P. Moreland's book called Kingdom Triangle. That's a really good one. And then um, um, Carl Truman's book, uh, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. That one's really difficult. It's, it's pretty uh, thick stuff, but if you can get through it, it'll really help you understand kind of like what, what the what the craziness of our moment is all about and where it comes from. Like these ideas have their Genesis. They, they didn't, they stay kind of feel like they just arose yesterday, but they've been kind of percolating for a couple hundred years now. And it's just now kind of come to a head. So he does a really good job of explaining that whole process and where these ideas come from and what we need to do about them. So those are just a couple of books that I'd recommend. That's helpful. Thank you. Um, do you, sorry. No, I just said very cool. Do you have uh, one final story for us? Yeah. Could, yeah. It could be anything, but uh, something from your experience. Okay. Because your stories are very helpful, I think. I, I mean, we should have you back just for you. Oh, we should just wind you up and say a story time with Rich Bordner. <laughs> <laughs> I'm all for it, man. I can go on and on. Um, okay. Here's one. This one happened last year. It was in my philosophy class. Because um, well, some people are blown away that that not everybody is Republican in Texas, and it's not in the drinking water, and the kids don't show up with cowboy boots in Copenhagen and their lip, and they're they're all, yeah, you know, Cruz, you know, or whatever. I mean, you know. Beto almost beat Cruz, you know, so you got to, hey, 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 dude, you got to be aware of this. Yep. Um, yeah, people, people say it to me somewhat frequently. They, they kind of act like and believe like Texas is this conservative haven. And it ain't no California, that's for sure. But it's, it's more secular than progressive than you might realize. I mean, under attack, public schools are still public schools. You know, yeah. it's not like uh, they're any different here than what you would find almost anywhere else in the country. Um, you know, same influences. Yep. So anyway, uh, this was in my philosophy class. And he just ain't just a grade. We were in a unit on gender. And in that unit, they watched a debate on abortion. And so afterwards, we were talking about it. And just like I said last time, if there were any pro-life kids in the class, um, they were quiet about it. 
or they were really apologetic about it. It's like, yeah, I'm personally pro-life, but I would never tell a woman what to do with her body. That sort of thing. But most not, of the kids, not apologetic in the good sense. Yes, exactly. Apologetic is that I'm like, I'm sorry. Like I'm apologizing for my point of view, kind of like being really timid about it. Well, that's how Jesus was. Yeah, exactly. And uh, most of the kids that were outspoken, not most, all were stridently pro-choice. And so just like that's a shocker, right? Just like with the last conversation I talked about, I started asking questions because again, I just want to thaw their dogmatism. I, I want to try to get them to slow down and to chill and to, you know, think about what they're saying in a deeper level. And so I, uh, I do what Scott Klusendorf, who's a, he's a pro-life debater, what he calls trotting out the top. He's coming on our, our podcast next week, I think. Oh, yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. We'll, we'll tell him the story then. Okay. Cause I think it will encourage him. And so I do what's called trot out the top because what they're, they're saying is like, you know, the, the, uh, abortion is okay if the child is unwanted. Abortion is okay if, if the child, if the mother can't afford the child, all those sorts of things. And so I was like, all right. So I've got a, a two-year-old in front of me. And should um, this mother be able to kill the two-year-old because it, because the child is unwanted? Or, you know, whatever, whatever she was saying at the time that the student, I just put that out there and then, you know, gave her that, that scenario. And uh, I'll never forget what this student said. The student, without blinking, with a straight face, said, yeah, yeah, we, we, the mother, if, if the child is unwanted and reminding her of a trauma she experienced in her past, yeah, yeah she should be able to, um, quote, get rid of, AKA kill that child. Just said that with a straight face. And I'm, I'm like, guys, did you, did you just hear what you just said? You're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Future Beto voter. And so I, uh, I just kind of like, I was like gobsmacked. I didn't know how to respond, even though every time I have this conversation, there's always somebody that says that. There's always a handful that take that position. So I guess I shouldn't be surprised at it. And one of the students said, it's like, Mr. Bordner, I really don't think you realize how desensitized to value in life we are. And she oh, said, that, are you serious? Yeah. She said that not as like, as, as, as like, it's a good thing. Like she said it, not as a way to say like, yeah, that's, it's, it's a shame that we think this way. She was like, just, yeah, we're just desensitized. We, we just don't care. I don't think you realize how much we don't care. And she was saying it like it was a good thing. Like she was just oh. talking about facts, you know? Cause so I was like, yeah, okay. I think, I think I'm getting, I think I'm, uh, I think I'm coming to that realization now. Well, you, just if, just place, man. if you think about it from a child's perspective, particularly, right? Like that's just coping. It, it, I'm a child and I might be unwanted and it's okay to, and all, you know, like that's like the logical extension of abortion being okay. Right. So if it's okay there, then it's gotta be okay here because we know that we, cognitively they know life is when when it starts they know when it starts it's obvious Mm -hmm. and it's like their way of coping with that that worry they have to not care or they'll be worried that they could be killed yeah maybe i don't know i don't know it was 
Well, in my, in my, in my college classes, I always go a step further and I know you can't because these are minors and you got to be sensitive to their development, which is, but when I'm getting full adults, right. I'm getting allegedly full adults. And I'll, I'll, I'll usually just point out that you're probably a Democrat. Thank you for that qualifier. Allegedly, you know, the person defending Nazis, I, it's never the Republican. (laughs) It's never that person. So it's, it's just, it's funny that how, how the, um, some of the, uh, reputation or i don't know how how this happens but it's exactly the opposite as what's happening on campus as, well, as far as what i'm seeing the craziness the denial of truth i i once asked uh, um a, a class room just we were talking about morality and whether there was such a thing as moral truth um, i asked is it true that rape is wrong and this is in los angeles <clears throat> a district that went for Hillary by 80%. And they said, no one said it's true that rape is wrong. Not a single person. And ironically, one of the main uh, objections to Hillary's opponent was some kind of alleged concern about sexual assault or something like that. And it was, anyway, you, you just don't believe it until you see it with your, with your own eyes, you see the inconsistency and the BS it's just BS. So, but anyway, this is really valuable. Sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt you. No, no, you're, you're right. In that uh, story I just told about the abortion conversation, I was expecting them to say like, Oh no, that's different because the, you know, the two-year-olds person and the the unborn is not. So we would have that conversation where I kind of show that the differences there's some differences there, but they're not morally relevant, you know, but they just totally took it in that direction. They're like bit the bowler. Like, yeah, that'd be fine if mom did that. And I, was, I guess I should stop being surprised by it because it's not the first time and not the last time that I, that I had that reaction out of it. Like yeah, I'd be curious to know where their line of demarcation is. Like, when is it not okay? Like, is it, is it eight? Yeah. Is it, is it your age? Is it, you know, <laughs> that's a great question. I should well, start asking. They hate Donald Trump because it, which you've mentioned, right? So you, you brought that up. I didn't bring it up. Mm-hmm. They hate Donald Trump because he discriminates and he violates people's rights. But the issue of rights is what you're really talking about. Do you even have rights? Does a human being have a, the, even the basic right not to be murdered? That's, uh, you know, what other, what, what, what good are your other rights? If you don't have a right not to be murdered, if you have a right to own property or a right to be yourself and you do you, it's such a foundational, that's why I do really like the abortion debate is because it is so foundational. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Just the other day in my English class, there was that that come that very question came up because actually this is the one pro-life student okay so in my english classes um they just finished a research project and one of the students did it on abortion and he took the pro-life position and so yeah they had to make presentations and so he gets up there and um starts making the pro-life case and immediately triggers half like a bunch of the class like some of the girls um as he's as he is making his presentation, they're like, "Get him, girls!" Like they actually said that. One girl goes, "When it came time for question and answer, it's like, all right, let's get him." 
like sick of him or something. So they start like peppering him with questions and start like being really aggressive. And he actually did a really good job of answering their questions to the point where at the end, like I, I kept my mouth shut and just kind of, cause he was doing a great job. He didn't need me to, you know, butt in at the end, the girls that were really aggressive and were saying like, get him girls. Like, Oh no, he didn't say that. Like at the end they were going, you know, you actually asked some questions that made me think I'll have to, I'll have to think about what you said. I was like, dude, awesome. It's the one kid. In That's my, awesome. In my That's years, true. in my yeah, years in school that has taken like a strong pro-life position and done a good job. That's a great case for free speech. I mean, yeah. just let the kids hash it out. Yeah. Yeah. But he, he, Lucas, he brought up that very question, that very point you made, like, where do rights come from and, and how is it grounded? And um, mm. awesome. I was the kid that you're referring to in my high school. My, well, I had a, an uh, atheist. He called himself a Buddhist, but let's just say what it was. He's an atheist. He's an atheist. He was an atheist history teacher named Mr. Melbach. And Peter Pete Melbach is what his name was. And he taught, I think he was the coach of the girls soccer team for a while. But anyway, he taught world history and somehow abortion came up in that class. I'm not really quite sure how that happened, but he did a debate. I don't know. He was one of these old school liberals where, you know, he believed in free speech. And I had written an article in the school newspaper. That might have been what it was. Who knows? But it was on abortion. I'm just not sure how he fitted into the curriculum. <laughs> but but um, he, uh, he said, let's uh, debate, you know, and it was me against the whole class. And there was other pro pro-lifers in there, at least two, but they were too quiet. So I yeah. was on my own. And it was... Of course, I had already written the, the school newspaper article, but um, it was. And, and the funny thing is, is at the time, I remember I wrote another article on gun control and I remember people telling me these are just culture war issues. You're just these are not going to be enduring issues. That's just like <laughs> I didn't believe it now. And here we are still dealing with it. Amazing, amazing prediction, um, because they really are such foundational issues. The, the question of what are rights, what rights do you have, what responsibilities you have are the flip side of that coin. You have a responsibility to, re to respect the rights of other people. And is that arbitrary or is there some, can you make some sense of that? Mm -hmm. And um, so, yeah, we salute you, dog. We salute you. Thank you, ma'am. Absolutely. Well, well, Rich, um, thank you for coming on and, and sharing all of your experience, not all of it, but some of it. And we me. would love to have you come back because we're a pro K through 12 done right podcast. Awesome, man. Yeah, let's do this again. It was fun. Yeah. Okay. Sounds good. Well, now that you're not coaching and working 80 hours a week. Yeah, I got to so, do something uh, with my time. <laughs> <laughs>